How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can come together to study your word, to focus on these eternal truths, to come to understand your plan and purpose in human history, that things are not aimless, things are not without direction, without purpose, even though in the uh, microcosm of our own lives and our own day-to-day experience, sometimes it may appear that way. From your word, we know that there is a specific plan and purpose and that you are working things out to that ultimate goal that you have Uh, prophesied and revealed in your word. Father, we pray for us that we might realize that we can trust you with everything in our life because you are the one who is in control and we need to learn to be dependent upon you and that no matter what our circumstances may be, no matter how tired or weary we may become, that we need to just learn to relax and trust in you and live each day, one day at a time, trusting, trusting in you that you are taking us in our own spiritual life to the direct to our own to maturity that we may glorify you now father we pray that as we study tonight you'll help us to understand the things we study that we may have a greater perspective on scripture and that we may uh, be protected from false teaching and error that so easily comes into the church today we pray this in christ's name amen okay just to let you know in case uh, somebody comes in late we are in romans We're just not going to be in Romans tonight. We are continuing to go forward, but every now and then somebody asks a question, and I got a triplet of questions or comments, as it were, observations uh, this last week that I thought just sort of came together in a perfect storm of uh, the fact that tonight's going to be questions, clarification, and contending. Now, some of you didn't make it to those uh, Jude classes, that I'm recording. Uh, Yesterday I recorded the next installment developing Jude 3 in in the command that we are to contend for the faith. And that word for contending in Jude 3 means to strive or work hard vigorously. It brings in the idea of discipline and intensity. And it is a word that is typically used of an athlete preparing for an athletic contest and then all of his effort that he puts into winning the contest. And we contend for the faith a couple of different ways. One way we contend for it is within our own soul because the sin nature always wants to distract us and pull us off into some area of uh, false teaching or some area of sin, carnality, And on the other hand, we always have to fight the attacks that come from others, either within the church or from outside the church, the cosmic system. And when that happens, then we are to contend uh, for the faith, the faith meaning a term that relates to the body of doctrine that is foundational uh, 
uh, to Christianity. Now, last time, as we went through our study on Romans 5, 1, and 2, just so you don't get lost for the uh, sidetracks, is we're focusing on the fact that now, as justified believers by faith, we have peace with God. Now, I want you to open your Bibles. Go ahead, open your Bibles to Romans 5, because I want to set this context. These, these questions that came up, while they may appear to be somewhat distracting or go in a little different direction, they really are important because they ultimately, as we'll see at the end, relate to what Paul has said in verses 13 through 25 of chapter 4. And as we shift into a new direction in chapter 5, uh, I want to take this one last time to try to pull some of these threads together to make sure there's no, uh, no confusion, no questions left unanswered. There always will be, though. That's just the way we are. In verse 13, Paul says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, I want you to notice that the focal point here is on the promise to Abraham. Now, that wasn't just in the in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. That's not just a promise of eternal life. That is the promise that he would be, what does it say in the text here, the heir of the world. That in terms of the fact that the Abraham through his seed would bless all of the nations, would bless the Gentile nations, and all the world would be blessed through Abraham. And so this idea of promise is connected in verses 13 and following to inheritance, which focuses us to a future reality. Uh, Abraham did not inherit the land. Abraham did not realize in his, uh, the, the personal promises that were made to him, or all of them rather, that were made to him by God in the uh, Abrahamic covenant. In uh, other studies that I have had, there were at least uh, 14 different promises that God made, or 13 different promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic uh, covenant. They included that God would develop a great nation from Abraham, number one, Number two, that God would give Abraham, Abraham, not just his descendants, but Abraham, a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East, which he never uh, personally had. He was still a, a sojourner, a traveler, basically living out of a mobile home a t- called a tent back then. He, he lived in an, in an RV, and the only piece of real estate he owned was the burial ground uh, where he and Sarah were buried. Uh, God promised that uh, Abraham was to be uh, blessed in his own lifetime, which he was, and and that um, and also promised that he would make Abraham's name great, which we just saw a hint of in Abraham's lifetime. Fifth, God promised a, a blessing upon those who would bless Abraham and his descendants in Genesis twelve three. Sixth, he announced a judgment, a harsh divine judgment on those who traded Abraham and his seed or his descendants 
with disrespect. And that's so important to bring out in Genesis 12, 3, that God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. In English, we use the same word to translate two different words in, in the Hebrew. And the first word in the Hebrew is, is a word, uh, the, the word related to God's judgment is a term for a harsh judgment, same word that's used in Genesis 3 related to the curse uh, of sin. But the word related, those who, who curse you, that word is a different word. It means to treat you with disrespect, uh, which is a, is, is a light sense. It's just to treat Israel frivolously. So if they don't take Abraham and his descendants seriously, if they treat them frivolously, frivolously, not in the sense of, um, uh, not, not just in the sense of harsh Nazi type anti-Semitism, but just with disrespect. God says, I will judge you harshly. So if, if God says, I'm going to judge harshly those who treat Israel with disrespect, how do you think God's going to judge those who are seriously anti-Semitic in a, in a harsh, overt, active way? So the seventh was that in, in, um, uh, and at, in uh, Abraham, all nations would be blessed. All nations would be blessed. Not that national distinctions are wiped out, but through Abraham, all nations, all the Gentiles will be blessed. Eighth, that Sarah would have a son. That was fulfilled in his lifetime. Ninth, that there was going to be an, the Egyptian bondage, that uh, his people, his descendants would be taken out of the land God promised for um, 400, 450 years, and then they would return. Uh, Tenth, that other nations would come from Abraham, aside from the promised seed. And this is fulfilled in various Arabic nations. And ultimately, many of these uh, intermingled and um, intermarried. And so today, you don't, can't really identify all of those, all those different groups, the distinctions between the Midianites and the, and the uh, Ishmaelites and uh, the Edomites. Uh, God changed Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Now that's important in light of what we're going to study tonight is that the name, the way the uh, ancient world looked at a name was it identified something about the character of the person. And the one who changes a person's name is the one who is in authority. And we see this again tonight in the changing of Jacob's name by God to Israel. And that's, that's an important background, but we see this with Abram, the changing of the name of Abram to Abraham, and then 12th from Sarai to Sarah. All of those provisions I listed, uh, I think I said 13 at the beginning, 12 that I listed there that are all part of God's promise to Abraham, which was stated 20 times. It's either restated to Abraham, I think it's six or seven times, just within the Abrahamic stories from Genesis 12 to 20, uh, 23. And then it's reiterated to Isaac and it's reiterated to Jacob and reiterated to Joseph 20 times. Uh, as if for us to get the point that God is serious about this promise that he is giving to Abraham, that he's going to give him a seed. Through that seed, there will be worldwide blessing of all the nations and that. Um, uh, God was going to give them a specific literal piece of real estate. Now that's that's important background uh, for wh- what I'm what I'm talking about. As the history of Israel developed and God entered into a temporary or conditional covenant called the we call the Mosaic Covenant or the S- Covenant at Sinai. 
there was a uh, further division, a distinction that was made in terms of the worship of God between Jews and Gentiles. Paul talks about this as the dividing wall uh, between Jew and Gentile in Ephesians chapter 2, which I looked at the last time. Because last time what I was focusing on was this concept of peace and how it is uh, also developed in other uh, of Paul's writings. And in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 11 down through the end of the chapter, Paul talks there about the peace that comes, the reconciliation that Christ accomplishes on the cross that destroys the barrier between Jew and Gentile, but primarily the barrier between uh, God God and mankind. And so we see that, that historically there developed this, this enmity, not just between man and God, but there was this enmity or hostility between Jew and Gentile. Uh, I pointed out uh, several things related to this, that Gentiles were demeaned uh, as uncircumcised. And uh, this was a typical way in which they talked about the uh, the, the Gentiles. They were the they were the uncircumcised, and the Jews were the circumcised. Gentiles were thus separated from a messianic hope. They didn't have the promise of the Messiah. That promise is given to Israel, but it's through the Messiah that the Gentiles will be blessed. But they don't they don't know that. That's not revealed specifically to them. Gentiles were alienated from the citizenship in Israel, which was a position of temporal blessing and blessing within the covenant. Uh, fourth, we saw that Gentiles were not party to the covenants. The covenants, all the covenants, including the new covenant, uh, is, are, the covenants are given to Israel. They're with, between God and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the Jewish covenants there. Three Gentile covenants, the creation or Edenic covenant in the Garden of Eden, the Adamic covenant, which is a revision of that initial covenant in Genesis chapter 3, and then the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. And then, I, and I pointed out that in these, uh, use this chart in terms of the, Abra- the, the Jewish covenants, the Abrahamic covenant is uh, further uh, developed in terms of three also unconditional or eternal covenants, the real estate covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Also in Ephesians 2, Paul points out that the Gentiles were without hope, that is, they had no promise of salvation, a savior to them. It was through the Jews, and that sixth, he said the Gentiles were godless. From there, I went over to Genesis 3:26 and following to point out that as Paul develops this in, Ge- in Galatians 3, he's showing that this distinction between Jew and Gentile that was part of the law has been completely obliterated in the church age because we are in Christ. Now, that's just in the church age that uh, he says there's no um, neither Jew nor Greek. Now, that doesn't mean the physical, actual reality of being an ethnic Jew and a, uh, or, or a Gentile was eradicated. Jews were still Jews and Gentiles were still Gentiles, just like men were still men and women were still women, oh, that, uh, and slaves were still slaves and the free were still free, which is what he goes on to say. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, <clears throat> there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. 
And so he doesn't mean that, that everybody who becomes a Christian is asexual and that maleness and femaleness are somehow eradicated or that the way to emancipation as a physical slave was through becoming a, Christ, a Christian because even uh, when he writes his letter um, to Philemon about uh, receiving back the slave Onesimus, he cannot order Philemon to... to uh, release or manumit Onesimus. He can't do it because that's not that that's in the physical realm. This is talking about the fact that in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law there were distinctions made that only free male Jews had access to the inner inner areas of the temple. The women were restricted to the courtyard of the women, the Gentiles to the courtyard of the Gentiles. But now in in Christ all have equal access to God. These distinctions from the Old Testament, from the Mosaic Law, are completely obliterated. In terms of our personal worship, our personal relationship with God, so that I use this chart that uh, there was enmity between Gentile and Jew because of the law, but enmity also between all human beings, Gentiles and Jews combined, and God. Uh, The work of Christ on the cross meant that that enmity is changed to peace, and so the issue is no longer sin. The issue is whether or not we accept the death of Christ on the on the cross. And the result is that there are now there is now this unity uh, in Christ, and we are being built together in the body of Christ. Okay, having said all of that, just to bring you back to where we were, where where we I ended last time. When I went through the Galatians 3 passage and read some of the broader context, I had a question that came to me related to understanding this this relationship of of Gentiles to Abraham's uh, faith. That uh, in what sense are, as I pointed out, in what sense are the Gentiles or church-age believers uh, descendants of, of Abraham spiritually? This also goes back to what we studied in Romans 4, uh, Romans 4.17, where Paul states, as it is written, quoting God, I have made you a father of many nations, God speaking to Abraham when he changed his name, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which did not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, that is Abraham, contrary to hope and hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. That is physically. God had promised him that. That was one of the provisions of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, was that he would become the physical father uh, of of many nations. But also goes on to state that he will be the father of many uh, spiritually, that he will become the spiritual father of those who follow him in faith, and that's in Galatians 3. And I'll end up with that tonight. So here are the three questions that, that I was asked. First of all, could I please clarify the concept of the spiritual seed of Abraham? Now let me give you the short answer. The short answer is that the physical seed of Abraham is a seed that goes through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's Israel. And the term Israel refers to the descendants and only the descendants physically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The spiritual seed, which is the focus of Galatians 3, the spiritual seed are only mentioned as the seed of Abraham. 
not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So don't you can't call the church or Gentiles saved in the church age spiritual Israel because Israel is always a term used of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so you, you, in, in Galatians 3, it's only talking about those who are the spiritual seed of Abraham in that they are of the faith and they are not of the circumcision. They are not of those who are emphasizing circumcision as a path to either Christ, uh, salvation or spirituality, justification or sanctification. The second question, which I've condensed a little bit for, for this introduction, is what does it mean to be the Israel of God? In Galatians 6.16, Paul says uh, for them to uh, greet uh, the believers and also the Israel of God. What does that term Israel of God mean? The claim that is made is this is this shows that the church, church age believers are really the true Israel and that we are we are the Israel of God. And that's false, but I'll show you why when we get there. And then the third question is how can someone, uh, this came out of a Tuesday night, but also relates to this question very much, which is how can someone who is anti-Zionist be anti-Semitic since many Jews are anti-Zionist. Now, you may not realize that, but there are many Jews that, that do not support a state, modern state of Israel. The, the uh, ultra-Orthodox still do not believe that there, there should be a Jewish nation until the uh, Messiah comes. And they still believe that. This is why they're called the Haredim. This is a term that refers to all of the ultra-Orthodox group, the Hasidic, the Lubavitchers, and there's a number of other groups. And this, um, um, but they don't serve in the IDF in Israel. They don't have to, they're not required to serve. And this is becoming a real controversial issue now uh, in, in Israel because they, they, they live off of the, uh, they live off of welfare in, in many cases, and yet they won't serve in the IDF or serve in the army. And so there's a lot of conflict that's been in the news in the last year related to uh, the, the uh, ultra-Orthodox. So there are, uh, certain segments of Jews, there are also many self-loathing or self-hating Jews. In fact, I was reading an article in this month's Commentary Magazine, which is a uh, publication that, it, that deals with a lot of political issues, but primarily Jewish issues. And the article has to do with why, why are the Jews letting the anti-Semites define what anti-Semitism means? And the article is really a, a reaction and is dealing with uh, uh, <clears throat> writings of an Israeli who has left Israel, kicked the dust off of his feet, moved to London, and it is a self-declared anti-Semite, um, anti-Zionist, self-admitted, self-loathing Jew. Now that sounds odd to our ears, but that is true. There are many liberal, Jew, secular Jews in America. In fact, somebody pointed out, I think uh, somebody at church sent me a, a text the other day that, that there was an article in the last issue of Newsweek magazine on why Jews vote like atheists. And I couldn't find that article, so I know somebody will find it for me and Xerox it, but I couldn't find that article, but I found a blog by a rabbi who said the reason Jews vote like atheists is because they are. It's a simple answer. 90% of Jews are, are, are either actual atheists who don't believe that there is a God or they are functional atheists and they live as if if there is a God, he has no relevance to their life. 
That's why they vote like atheists. And then he says, and I'm one of them. This is a rabbi. Okay, go figure. Now, when I get into this, I'm going to deal with some issues that are that affect some of you who are in this congregation and some of your friends, friends, colleagues, and uh, loved ones. Because part of the responsibility of the, of the pastor that's laid out not only in Jude 3 to contend for the faith is laid out by the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 28 to 31, where he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, who's he talking to? This is at the end of his third missionary journey when the Apostle Paul was on his way to uh, Jerusalem, and he didn't want to take the time to go all the way to Ephesus, so he stopped off at the closest port city, which is Miletus, and he asked for all of the pastors of the, of the churches, of the believers in uh, Ephesus to come and meet him in Miletus. So he's talking to a group of pastors. Okay, that's important to understand that. He says, take heed to yourselves. That's first and foremost, pastors, watch your own doctrine and your own teaching and your own application. Take heed to yourselves. And this word is a word in the Greek that means to uh, give uh, attention to something, to apply your, your mind, your thought process, to focus on something. So he says, to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among uh, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, number one, enemies on the outside, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is the assault from the outside, uh, perse- everything from persecution to the influence of false doctrine and false ideas that impact the local church. Verse 30, also from among yourselves, you pastors, some of you are going to apostatize. Some of you are going to depart from the faith. He says, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. So you have savage wolves and perverse pastors. And sadly, we've had our own experiences with pastors who fall into this category. So the command, therefore, in verse 31 is to watch and remember. Remember what? Remember Paul's example. For three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul's constantly warning everybody about false doctrine. That's his point. So the first thing I want to talk to is this, talk about is this second question I raised, which is, who are the Israel of God? Because the answer to that is the foundation for the answer to question one and question three. The, there is a claim that is made, uh, and I got this in an email from someone in a um, uh, someone who is a distance uh, distance member of the church, and got this email from someone who goes to the church that I don't ever mention by name, but it is pastored by someone who's come under the influence of N.T. Wright and his perverted teaching on both the uh, uh, distinction between Israel and the church, which he's rejected. N.T. Wright is also a preterist. N.T. Wright has also rejected the historic doctrine of justification by faith alone. He has influenced uh, some pastors that pastor churches who were formerly solid free grace dispensational uh, churches, and uh, some of you have friends, family, and loved ones in those congregations. So I take it that it is specifically incumbent upon me to give you ammunition you need to deal with these, including the people in this particular tape group, 
video group or whatever I, we call the media group that's out there uh, who sent me this information. And the claim that was made in a Bible class just recently by this particular pastor who incidentally has no formal theological training <clears throat> says his first point is that the phrase called by my name, which comes from Acts fifteen seventeen relates to Jacob being renamed by the angel of Yahweh in Genesis 32. That's a disconnect, by the way, but we'll get there. It, there's no connection between the two. That's, that, that is just a leap in logic, uh, that, and that's usually what happens with false teaching. Either you, have, uh, uh, either you have a leap in logic or you have somebody just imposes their theology on the text, which is called eisegesis. We talk about exegesis, ex meaning out of. We derive uh, through uh, inductive reasoning, inductive study of the Scripture. We, we pull out of the Scripture what it teaches. Eisegesis is when you form up a theological system that you then read into the Scriptures, and you get the Scriptures to try to fit your uh, theological system. Uh, in Genesis, the second point was that in Genesis 32, the angel of Yahweh renamed Jacob Israel. Third point in his argument was that after the angel of the Lord, we'll look at the passage in a minute. You can go ahead and turn to Genesis 32, uh, starting in about verse 26. And uh, <clears throat> in that dialogue there, the, uh, the angel of the Lord first asks Jacob, what's your name? Now, what do we just learn about Abraham? This is a sign of authority over uh, someone else. The one in authority has has the power and the ability to change the name of a, of a subordinate. So the angel of the Lord says, what's your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. He says, after this, you're going to be known as Israel. And then Jacob, uh, the heel grabber, the crafty one, the, the, the one who's always manipulating things, says, what's your name? All right, but then this pastor said that when, under point three here, when Jacob then asked the angel what his name was, the angel replied, why are you asking my name? Now, that's right as far as it goes, but the pastor said this really means the angel is saying, since you already know it. That's what its implication is uh, from the text. Why are you asking my name? Dummy, you already know my name. And then he says, it's the name I just gave you, which would be Israel. But that's not in the text anywhere. Even when I put it under my pillow and slept on it and prayed about it, it still didn't come through the pillow in osmosis. I don't know where he got it. Sometimes I want to know, what are you smoking when you're studying the Bible? Point number four, he then says, Christians, therefore, are called the Israel of God. Now, if God's name is Israel, the angel of the Lord's name is Israel, and Christians are called the Israel of God because Christians are in Christ, we're in Israel, and therefore church-age Christians are the new Israel. Now you laugh, but there are a lot of people who believe this. This is just one form of the argument. Uh, there are, and their numbers increase, there are large numbers of, of evangelical Christians. Most of them come out of a Calvinist background, but there are many Calvinists who do not hold to, to a replacement theology. But that's what this is known as formally, is replacement theology, the belief that uh, the church replaces Israel. So the promises that were supposed to go to Abraham 
are now going to be fulfilled in the church. I remember years ago, in 99, I think, the Evangelical Theological Society was meeting in Boston. And I hadn't been to one of these in many, many years. And since I was in Preston City and it was about an hour and a half drive up to Boston, I decided I'd, I would go. And I saw a lot of my former professors from Dallas Seminary there and a lot of uh, classmates, people were there. I had spent a lot of time with a number of men that I knew, Randy Price and Tommy and some others. And I was uh, talking with Elliot Johnson, who's a great uh, hermeneutics professor at Dallas Seminary. And we we had just broken up our conversation, and Bruce Waltke, who I mentioned before, who was a great Hebrew professor at Dallas at one time, a dispensationalist, and he walked up, and uh, Ed Bloom, who some of you who've been around Houston a long time may remember because he was the pastor of uh, Bethel Presbyterian back in the 60s before he became a professor at Dallas. Ed Bloom and, and uh, Ellie walked over to, to uh, Bruce Walkey, and I overheard the conversation, and, they, and, and they, just went, they just went right after him, and they said, they said, um, well, 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 Bruce, have you figured out that that Israel still means Israel and that the promise that God made to Abraham still lies between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates. Because <laughs> Bruce Waltke has become a covenant theologian and amillennial, and so the land is now heaven for him. But in, in this, this movement is growing. In fact, in, a, in the next two or three months, they're going to have a large conference of, of uh, these anti-Zionists who are becoming much more vocal uh, in Bethlehem, a worldwide conference of, of uh, pro-Palestinian Christians who think that uh, Christian Zionists are a heretical sect, according to Stephen Sizer, who was one of their... Uh, uh, leading advocates and authors. So this has a lot of important importance and significance. What you basically have here in this construction that this pastor puts together is, first of all, a context problem. He doesn't understand the context of either Genesis 32 or, Genesis, or Galatians 6, and whenever you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. When you add that to a misreading problem, he just reads something right into that text, and you add two lexical problems, one from Genesis 32 and another from from Galatians 6, uh, you add all of that up and you're left with a... uh, Now I've got to set this up again. You're left with a theological problem of massive proportions. There we go. And this is replacement theology, which is the breeding ground, the historical breeding ground for anti-Semitism, and it really had its roots back in the allegorical uh, hermeneutics of origin in the early 3rd century and became institutionalized by, um, by Augustine in the uh, late 4th, early 5th century. The foundation to understand the real, the overall context of Genesis 32, you have to understand the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the context for Genesis 12 through 50. Everything from the call of Abram in Genesis 12:1 to the death of Joseph, that he is left in a dead in a coffin in Egypt as Genesis ends. It's all about God's covenant with Abraham and the outworking of that uh, of that covenant. 
And that covenant God promised Abraham a specific piece of real estate, the land. He promised a seed that through that seed there would be worldwide blessing and that um, all the Gentiles uh, would be blessed. And those covenants were all expanded. I mean, those statements were all expanded in subsequent covenants. Now, the immediate context that we come on in, um, in Genesis 32 brings our focus on a wordplay. And that wordplay is essential. There are a lot of wordplays the Holy Spirit loves a pun. He is a punster a, or a paranomasia, which is a, a, a wordplay. And he uses these over and again in numerous Old Testament books. And they're designed to get our attention on things because they didn't have boldface type or underline or italics. So they use things like wordplays and puns in order to get people's attention and to emphasize certain things so that all of a sudden you see the, this kind of an interchange going on. It gets your attention and you think, oh, I have to really pay attention to what's going on here. So there's a wordplay here on the name of Jacob, and Jacob means the trickster, the supplanter. He is the heel grabber, literally the one who is the youngest of a set of twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. God had promised Isaac and Rebekah, before these twins were born, that the older, which would be Esau, would serve the younger. The blessing is already promised to the younger. But the heel grabber's got to manipulate things and get it himself. And so we have the episode where he uh, disguises himself uh, so that his old blind father Isaac will think he's Esau, and he goes out and he fixes this meal for him, his favorite meal that he brings into him so that his father will give him the the blessing of the of the older son. And then he also tricks his brother Esau when he comes when Esau came in from a hunt and he's tired, he's worn out, and he's hungry. And Jake, Jacob says, ah, I'll, uh, I'll sell you uh, my, my bowl of uh, lentil stew here if you will, uh, I'll, I'll trade it for your birthright. So he, he's manipulated things. But that's not the way you get it. Even though he got it, he got it the wrong way. And the wrong, right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. And so God's got to teach him a lesson. And so in terms of the context, uh, the lesson is that, that uh, Jacob has to... Uh, move out of the land, always a sign of, of some kind of discipline from God. He's got to move out of the land, and he moves up north to look for a wife, and he goes to work for cousin Laban. The primary reason he has to leave is because after he's tricked Esau, Esau is breathing murder, and so his uh, uh, his mother, Rebecca, says, here's some money. Uh, you better hit the road real fast because Esau is looking for you, and if he finds you, he's going to kill you. And go stay with cousin Laban for a while. So, so uh, Isaac, I mean, uh, Jacob hit the road, and he goes up there and he works for seven years, and he wants to to marry uh, Laban's beautiful daughter Rachel. But Laban out tricksters the trickster. See, this is how God is bringing discipline into Jacob's life. Is he's going to become the the, uh, the the victim of his own uh, methodology, and he gets out. And these are just you know you you read through the story of Jacob and uh, and Laban, and you just realize these are not likable people. You don't want them for your neighbors. They're they're conning each other, and they're family members. You know they're sneaky, they're hypocritical, uh, they uh, are always trying to uh, really just get everything they can out of the other person and 
they're not honest, and it's just you know backstabbing and backbiting and and uh, everything else. And so, uh, after working seven years and then getting tricked into uh, marrying Leah, um, she had the veil on, and he thought it was Rachel. And when he woke up the next morning, it was it was the ugly sister Leah. And so he had to work another seven years to get Rachel. So after 14 years, he's finally beginning to uh, uh, get a little humility. And so at this time, he God works things out, and, and he's able to go back home. And he heads back to the land. And so the, when we get to chapter 31, uh, Jacob is heading south to the land. Laban's in hot pursuit because, you know, Rachel has stolen the family idols, which is the sign of the inheritance and uh, where the family blessing goes. And then as he enter, gets ready to enter the land in chapter 32, uh, Esau is going to meet him. And the last time he had any dealings with Esau, Esau was breathing murder and threats and going to kill him. So he decides what he's going to do is he's going to send all these gifts of sheep and goats and cattle and everything ahead of him. These are all gifts for Esau to placate him, and then he's going to send all the women, and he sends all the women, and he stays behind so that, that if that by the time all of this has gone past Esau, maybe his temper will have cooled and he won't be out to get Jacob. So you see, Jacob is still still trying to sort of control the situation. He hasn't really learned to trust God yet, and that's where we run into him in uh, Genesis chapter 32. And in Genesis 32, and the first part is that he is he stays behind, and he is with his um, uh, he he's, he prays to God in verse nine. He says, "O God of my father Abraham and of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you.'" He confesses his sin. He says, "I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you've shown your servant, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies." Deliver me, I pray, from, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the, and, uh, and the mother with the, with the children. For you said, and then he repeats the promise from God, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is uh, uh, Genesis 32, 9 through 12. You see the humility there. He's dependent upon God and looking to God to uh, to take care of him and to fulfill his promise that through him will come an innumerable uh, multitude of descendants. So he stays there, and uh, the next day he gets up, and in verse 22 we read, He arose at night, took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. Now here's where we get into the wordplay. The story's about Yaakov, Yaakov the man, and Yaakov is crossing over the Jabbok. See, it's the same consonants. You just shift the second, the, the B and the K uh, sound. So you go from Yaakov, who's crossing the Yabak, and now he's going to get in a wrestling match, and the verb for wrestling is Yabek. So you have those three words there, Yaakov, Yabak, Yabek. And that gets your attention. See the wordplay that's going on here designed to grab our attention and focus, uh, focus on the story. Now the map... Uh, shows the, the green line coming down from the upper right-hand corner at Haran, shows the path that he has taken down to uh, into what is now the uh, kingdom of Jordan. It's the Transjordan area where he's going to cross over uh, into the promised land, the land itself, and here's a little blow-up of, uh, of that map, and you see where he's going to cross here at a place called uh, Peniel, 
which means God face to face, which is where the verse at Campanile took its name so that when people come to Campanile, they'll meet God face to face. Now, as he does this, look at verse 27. Or look, look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone, so he sends the women ahead. And then Jacob was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, he doesn't know who this is, but it is a person in the form of a man. Now, he understands who angels are because back in verse 1, we're told that as Jacob was coming down, the angels of God met him. Ah, so he knows who angels are, and he can identify an angel, but this is, that is, is later identified as the angel of the Lord, but this is a man in the form of a man, and so there's this wrestling match. Now, what's interesting is the Greek word that is used to translate uh, ya'abek, the Hebrew verb, is the Greek verb palaio. Pale is the noun used for we wrestle not with uh, flesh and and blood. We wrestle with uh, principalities and powers, a spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians 6, 10 and following. The noun is pale. The verb is palaio. That's the Greek verb. The Greeks named the land Palestine based on palaio because it sounded like Philistine, but Philistine starts with a fricative not a hard labial, puh. Palio would, not go, a, 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 palio would not make this shift from a P to, a, to an F sound going from Hebrew to, um, Hebrew to Greek. It doesn't do that with, with, with other words. So palio uh, really is not based on Philistine. This is one of the myths that the modern uh, Arab inhabitants of the land want you to believe is that uh, they somehow trace their heritage back to the Philistines, and that Palestine is a term that relates to the land of the Philistines, but it doesn't. It was the land of the wrestler. The Greeks originated this terminology for that region and called it the land of the wrestler. Well, who's the wrestler? The wrestler's Jacob. It says nothing to do with the Philistines. It has to do with it has to do with the, uh, with the land of, of Israel. But they, the Greeks got a chuckle out of it because they loved puns. And Palestina sounded like Philistines, so they got a real chuckle out of this because it made the land of, the, of Israel sound like the land of the Philistines, and so they got a big chuckle and laugh out of that. So anyway, this is the wrestling match. And it goes on all night, and Jacob isn't winning, and the, the angel of the Lord, who could easily defeat him, is just fighting hard enough to keep the contest going until, until daybreak. And then we read in verse 25, now when he saw that it, uh, he saw that he did not prevail against him, that is the angel of the Lord here, um, saw that he did not prevail against him, that he isn't defeating, defeating uh, Jacob, because Jacob by this time understands that this is not just a man. He already understands this is, this is a divine person. And he's wrestling with him because he wants the blessing. He wants now he's he's being dependent upon God and he's holding on because he wants God to be the one to find to give him that blessing. So verse twenty five, uh, the angel of the Lord touches the socket of his hip, which leaves a permanent wound, and for thereafter Jacob will will limp as a constant reminder that his life changed this particular night, and the uh, and. Um, the angel of the Lord says, let me go for the day breaks. 
But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, that's the issue. The focal point of this story is on this wrestling match and Jacob's humility, and he is holding on to God in persistence because he wants God to bless him. And um, in verse 27, we come to the context of what was distorted by this pastor. So he said to him, that is the angel of Yahweh, who is, of course, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, He did get that much right. Uh, He says to Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob says, it's Jacob. That's chiseler, uh, heel grabber. This isn't much of a name for someone who who is blessed by God. So the angel says, your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Israel, for you have struggled with God. Now the word here is Elohim. Israel, the L says Elohim. It's short for Elohim. You've struggled with God, and the text again says Elohim, and with men and have prevailed. See, you've wrestled, you've struggled with God. You're holding on. You're not giving up in the spiritual battle. You're going to hold on to God for your blessing, number one. And number two, you've prevailed in your problems with Laban and the others, and you have learned humility and grown to spiritual maturity. Now, the term uh, Israel, El is the name of God, but the root Sarah uh, is used in, and it's used in the same context in, in the um, in the passage for also as a synonym for uh, uh, for wrestling and for um, struggling uh, with God. And so, the the popular etymology here is that he is called uh, uh, Jacob because he is uh, I mean called Israel because he struggled with God. Now, there's a lot of debate as to just exactly how we get to the, these things. And in, in, in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, these words that are used for these names are not always, that's not always the dictionary meaning of the, of, the, of the root word. But it sounds like, again, it's a word play. So it sounds a certain way, and so it brings to mind this idea of, of contention or fighting. And so you, he is called this because he struggled with God and prevailed. Uh, there, are, there is a homophone in the Greek, which means it has the same sound, same letters, uh, sarar, that also means to rule. That's why some of you have seen or heard that Israel means he, he, uh, the prince of God or the one who rules with God, but that's, you know, that's, that's again, is speculation. It may be true, uh, 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 maybe that's the word, uh, the word sarar that's translated struggled here is only used a couple of other times, so we're not really sure. But the text tells us what the implication is that God wants us to get out of it, and that is that he's named this because he has struggled with God and prevailed. But then Jacob says, well, tell me your name. See, he's still got a little bit of that. I want to control you, God, kind of mentality that we all uh, hold on to. And and there's no answer. There's no answer. Now, remember the contention from this pastor was that the implication of this is that, well, you know who I am. If there's any implication, it, it it's if you will think about it, you will understand who I am. But there's this mystery here cloaking the identity of God. And you get the same thing. This is why context is important. Context. You have the immediate context of Genesis 32. You have the broader context of the life of Jacob, the broader context of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. But then you have the broader context 
of the Old Testament. And in Judges 13, 17, and 18, you have almost an identical kind of phrase when Manoah, the father of, of Samson, Shimshon, uh, Manoah says to the angel of the Lord who has just appeared to uh, Manoah and his wife promising that they'll have a, have a child, he says, what's your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? seeing that it is wonderful. And the Hebrew word here for wonderful is pele, and it's only used to apply to God. So when he says seeing that it is wonderful, he's using a term indicating that he is he's God, he's divine. And so God is cloaking himself. See, we don't get a full picture of who God is until Jesus comes to reveal him according to uh, John chapter 1. So this is not a content. You're just reading into this text this idea that that this that the name Israel applies to the angel. That's what this guy had. This pastor had said. It said when um, when Jacob asked, "What's your name?" Uh, he, it's implied, "Well, you already know my name, and it's the same as yours." Is that there? That's why I said it's an error of reading. It's eisegesis. He's reading something that's not in the text, so he's got a problem. He doesn't understand the context. He, he can't read what's in the verse. He's reading things into the verse. And then he completely misidentifies the word study, which is related to Israel. If there's a name for God in the text, what is it? Elohim, Israel, Peniel, and Elohim are used like four or five times in these verses. The only name for God that's here is Elohim, not Israel. That's just making things up as you go along. So in the context broad context, we see that God promises to bless the Gentiles through Abraham and his descendants. Uh, this uh, theological argument, using the term loosely, misreads the text because the angel never implies that Israel is his name as well. The two key words that are misidentified are, first of all, Israel as the name given to Jacob in relation to his new status, his new direction, and his new life. Israel focuses on on Jacob and his positive relationship to God. And later it's often used, uh, Jacob is used of, of Israel when they're in carnality, like the time of Jacob's trouble in the tribulation. And Israel is used to, to focus on the positive when God is blessing them. Then we That's all background to understand Galatians 6.16. Now Galatians 6.16 is the close of Galatians. And Paul says, and as many as walk according to this rule, that is what he has just articulated in terms of walking by means of the Spirit, starting at Galatians 5.16, going all the way down through Galatians 6.15. He says, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now notice even in the English, it's clear you have the prepositions repeated. He's not identifying them with the Israel of God. He's talking about two groups of people. The first group, the them, refers to those who are walking according to this group, this, this rule. And the second group are the Israel of God, two distinct groups. The NIV translates it, even the Israel of God, which is a mistranslation because it's clear he's talking about two groups of people. The term Israel is used 43 times in 41 verses from Acts 1 through Revelation 22 a total of 73 times in the New Testament. Every other time, 
and I have gone through and analyzed every use of the term Israel in the Gospels, Acts, and the, the epistles in Revelation. Every single time, it refers to the physical genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a hermeneutical fallacy of the first order to take a word that in every other use in the Bible refers to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then all of a sudden in this one verse you're going to give it a totally different meaning. There's no basis, no justification for that whatsoever. There's no foundation for it. Uh, it is just reading a, a, um, a theological system into the verse. It's clear in the Scripture that Paul always recognizes there's a distinction between the Gentiles and the blessing to the Gentiles that comes to the Jews. This is a background in Romans 15, 8 through 10, where Paul says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the who? To the circumcision. That's a technical term for the Jews. To the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to who? To the fathers. Romans 9, 4. The covenant and the promises belong to Israel. And that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. See, the Gentiles are not equated to the circumcision. They're still distinct. That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Okay, now, this all started in this pastor's view when in Acts fifteen sixteen he says, After this, which, which is a quote from the Old Testament, this is a quote from uh, Amos 9, and I'm not going to get into a lengthy discussion on this because this is a whole other Bible class. But in, um, in uh, Acts chapter 15, there is a quote from Amos 9 which says, After this I will return. After what? Well, the context of Amos 9 is the tribulation. After this I will return. This is the second coming. And will rebuild the tabernacle of David which is the establishment of the millennial kingdom, which has fallen down, I will re rebuild its ruins, God says, and I will set it up. This is the establishment of the messianic kingdom so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. This is Isaiah 2. All the nations will come and worship God in Jerusalem at the, at the mountain of the Lord. So the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. This, this was what, where this guy started. Calling by his name is not Israel, from Genesis 32, called by, my, by his name are those who identify with the Messiah in the Messianic kingdom and those who are believers, those who are going to the mountain of the Lord to worship according to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Now, I just want to briefly turn with me to Galatians 3. I know we're almost done, but I want to uh, wrap this. I think I can with all that foundation laid. I think I can wrap this very quickly. Remember the promise we talked about in Romans 4. It's talked about as the background in Genesis. The promise to Abraham was that all the Gentiles would be blessed through him. They're not going to become Jews. They're going to be blessed. There's going to be worldwide blessing that's going to come through Abraham and his descendants. In Galatians chapter 3, the end of the chapter talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit I mentioned last time. In Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse uh, six, we have a, oh my, look at that familiar quote, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I think we've studied that sufficiently. 
that it was this this refers to the time when God just originally justified imputed righteousness to Abraham and justified him prior to his calling in Genesis chapter 12. It comes from Genesis 15, 6, but it should be translated as we've seen that Abraham had already believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Therefore, Paul says, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. doesn't say sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember what I pointed out at the beginning? It's only the sons of Abraham. They identify with Abraham because they are trusting in God alone for their justification. They're trusting in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross by faith alone, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by faith alone. So therefore, know, Paul says, that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's what Amos 9 was was talking about. That's why uh, James quotes it in Acts 15, uh, 16, and 17, is to emphasize that the Old Testament foresaw that the Gentiles would also be saved. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all nations shall be blessed. So the Gentiles are blessed if they come by faith alone, verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Then verse 10 goes on to say, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. I think we've covered this sufficiently in Romans 4. Galatians is sort of uh, the, the abbreviated short version of what Paul later writes after he's meditated on it for a while in, in Romans. So he, he's, he's pointing out here that those who follow Abraham receive the blessing of Abraham. Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. We're not talking about Old Testament Gentile salvation here. He's focusing on church age salvation of Jew and Gentile in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then he goes on to say, talk about the promise of Abraham that is fulfilled in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. That Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. Now to Abraham and his seed, now we get into something a little tricky because the word seed is what we call a collective noun. A collective noun is like people. Uh, it can refer to a small group or a large per- or crowd. It's a singular noun, but it has a collective meaning. Uh, seed can be singular or it can be plural. It's singular in the sense of look at the seed, the apple seed, an individual seed, or it can talk about all of the descendants of somebody, meaning the descendants of Abraham. But here Paul makes a point out of the fact that the word seed is singular, and so the promise is to a seed singular, not as many, but as one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So he applies the promise of blessing ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, This I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise, the promise again, of no effect. This is then stated in verse 18, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. What is Paul saying in Romans 4? 
that the that the promise is to Abraham that he would be that he would inherit the world. He would receive his uh, inheritance uh, in the future, and we we study through that. So the bottom line here is simply that that what Paul is saying is that Abraham is the father of those who believe, who follow him in faith alone, in the gospel, faith alone in Christ alone. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the are, 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 is the line for the physical lineage of Israel, and only and the term Israel is only used of those who are physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the spiritual descendants of Abraham refer to those who are either physical descendants, or they are. They, follow, they are Gentiles who follow Abraham in faith. This is why Paul says in Romans 9 that not all Israel is Israel because some are only physical descendants. But you have to be a physical descendant and a spiritual descendant to be justified and to have an inheritance in the future kingdom. So this answers the three questions. Doesn't well, not, not the third one so much, but that's that's a quick answer. Why on anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism? The world is becoming more and more hostile to Israel and hostile to the Jews. If the Jewish people are not allowed to have their own territory, and you make statements as some politicians have made that the that uh, Israel is a, the existence of Israel is a problem and Israel really doesn't have any right to all of the land then what you are basically doing through the back door passively is saying that that all the Jews need to be in a land that will not protect them they, in Israel they have a place that protects them in Israel they have a land that is home base it is the only place in the world where they have true 100% security and the government is not going to turn against them and persecute them for being Jewish. And if you say that that land, should, they, they don't have a right to that land, what you are tacitly saying is, you, what you're tacitly doing is giving permission for another holocaust. You are tacitly giving approval to the Jews living in a world that is hostile to them. Another way in which anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism is from the UN to to various uh, different groups that criticize Israel. Now, see, Zionism doesn't mean you support everything that the Jewish government does. The Israel, I mean, the Jews, the Israelis don't support everything the Israeli government does. That that is a distortion of what Zionism is. Zionism says, number one, we believe the Jews have a right to the land and to their own nation and to defend their land and their nation. It doesn't say anything about whether they're right or wrong. It just says they have a right to their own nation and to defend it. Um, But when you come along and you hold them up to a standard that is different from the other nations, where you criticize the Israeli government for doing things that your own government is doing and you don't criticize it for, then what you're doing is you're isolating Israel and holding them up to an unacceptable standard that is unique to them, and that is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism isn't just the active hostility and assault upon the Jews. It is also a passive uh, passive acceptance of treating the Jews in a more negative manner simply because they're Jews. And that can be passive, and there are many people who are guilty of passive anti-Semitism because they 
take a Palestinian side, and in doing so, they totally ignore a whole host of international laws established uh, from the uh, San Remo Resolution in 1920 uh, and and, uh, subsequent to that, which recognized that the Jewish people had a right to all of the land west of the Jordan River for a national homeland for the Jewish people. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to look at these things and to understand your plan and purpose for Israel that you called out Abraham and that you would work through him and his descendants, specifically through Isaac and Jacob, to bring the light into the world, the light through revelation and the light through Jesus Christ, who was the light of the world, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we uh, continue to pray for Israel. We continue to pray for the Jewish people. We pray for their safety. We pray for... Uh, the enlightenment of the gospel and the truth of your word. And we pray that you would uh, uh, help us to understand the, these issues, especially as they re- relate to current politics and cur- current politicians and to foreign policy decisions that this nation, uh, this nation makes, especially in reference to Israel and the Middle East. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.